Welcome to part two of this special Grading the Nutmeg podcast. In this section, state archaeologist emeritus Nick Valentoni tells us the unforgettable story of Albert Afraid of Hawk, a young Lakota Sioux man who died in Danbury in 1900 while traveling with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. This moving account is part of Nick's new book, The Long Journey Home, published by Wesleyan University Press. Grading the Nutmeg is a collaboration between the Office of the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And it's brought to you by attorney Peter Bowman, more at bowman.legal, and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you like this podcast, please take a few minutes to review us on your podcast website. Reviews make a great difference and help our audience continue to grow. So please, if you like what you hear, do let people know. Now, back to Nick on Grading the Nutmeg. So, okay, here you are, this young archaeologist. You've been asked to participate in an event that clearly is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So you go along the next 20 years or so, and you're a state archaeologist, and you do, you know, you, you become a legendary state archaeologist, <laughs> and everyone loves you, and you do terrific <laughs> things. But there probably wasn't an experience that, you know, had fully matched the dimensions of that in that time. That's exactly right. That always stood out as the most special project I had ever been involved with. But then, 20 years later, the phone rings again, right? Well, actually, this time it was an email message. Okay, well, of course, time moves and the moving finger writes, yeah. And... uh, Basically, it was from a colleague of mine, uh, Dan Krusen, who's president of the Archaeological Society uh, from uh, uh, Newtown. And he told me about that the the Freda Hawk family has requested the removal of one of their ancestors from uh, from, uh, um, Worcester Cemetery in Danbury, uh, and they really need you to come in here and and, and do the work. And And who was afraid of Hawk? Okay, so uh, Albert afraid of Hawk comes from a family of uh, Ogala Lakota Sioux. Um, th- their territory was west of the Missouri River, uh, all the way really almost to, uh, you know, past the Little Bighorn uh, area, um, the Bighorn Mountains. Um, so South Dakota, Montana. South Dakota, what, Montana. Yeah. They were part of, you know, what would eventually become the Pine Ridge Reservation. Yeah. That is shortened. Uh, but anyhow, uh, his family um, it, it was quite notable. His, his grandfather, uh, Slowbull, uh, was a warrior with Red Cloud who fought against you know, the Oregon Trail and the, the Bozeman Trail. And uh, um, after the Civil War, uh, actually was undefeated. The American government never defeated him. And uh, eventually, um, because we wanted to build a transcontinental railroad, we would um, um, sign uh, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, and Slobel, one of the warriors with uh, um, uh, Red Cloud, is one of the signers of that treaty, which becomes really 
an important document of one sovereign nation to with another sovereign nation signing a treaty for peace and all of the um, reparations that would go with it. His slow bull son is afraid of Hawk. Um, and he was um, with um, Crazy Horse. He, um, he was at Little Bighorn. Uh, Albert's, uh, Albert wasn't born till um, 1879, 1880. So three years before he was born, his family is at So Little this Bighorn. is Albert's grandfather. Our grandfather and his father. Both are at Little Bighorn. Both are at Little Bighorn. Uh, and um, this is kind of an interesting story from a historic perspective, too, is not only that they were there, uh, his father fought with Crazy Horse against Custard. Um, when we were told... This is 1876, by 1876, the way, just about the time. So, that's right. So it is roughly 50-some years after Henry Obakaya dies. Now you have a man fighting, you have a, an Indian, completely different tribe, thousands of miles away, fights Custer at the Little Bighorn, the great yep. Indian victory, and that's the grandfather of the person you get this call. Grandfather and father of the person that di died in Connecticut, uh, Albert Alfredo Hawk. So here's, a, from an historian point of view, this is pretty interesting. Um, we were told by the family, in terms of their oral traditions, that Afraid of Hawk, the father and the grandfather and, and the mother and so forth, were at Little Bighorn. When we went to the historic documents, when we tried to find you know something concrete in writing that he was there, we don't find anything. We can't. There's no records at all about him being there. So we were kind of like you know. It's well, a family legend. I, I right? could talk to it as yeah. part of oral tradition, yeah. but I can't. But what we did find was uh, we got to examine. Uh, Crazy Horse's Surrender Ledger. And there in the ledger is a list of all of the names and the people that surrendered with Crazy Horse. Now, after Little Bighorn, they dispersed. The Northern Cheyenne and the Lakota dispersed. Sitting Bull goes up toward Canada. Crazy Horse goes to the south with his people. And eventually, after a very hard winter, um, they surrender in May of 1877 at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. And there it is. In the ledger, Slowbull, Afraid of Hawk, White Mountain, who's Albert's mother, and two sons. And two, two, uh, now, Albert wasn't born yet, uh, but they, the, after the surrender, the family would follow Red Cloud and become a part of the new Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, in south, uh, um, west, uh, south Dakota. And of course, we know what happens at Pine Ridge. That, exactly, yeah. and uh, what happens, uh, uh, part of which happens, um, is in 1890 is the massacre at Wounded Knee with the ghost dance uh, scare, what they call the Messiah craze. And it turns out that the Fredo Hawk family was very involved with the ghost dance, trying to, and that's a whole long story, I know. Uh, but they were, as a result of being part of this ways. ghost dance group, they were at the Wounded Knee Massacre. And it, it's, you can't, I mean, Americans called it something else for right. many generations. We called generations. it a battle. They, yeah, the, but the... The natives the, called it a massacre. And, the, you know, as you lay out what actually happened, it's hard to reconcile shooting machine guns into women and children as anything other than a It was massacre. horrendous. It was, uh, it was mass killing. It was just, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Forsythe, who was in charge of the, of the, the 7th Cavalry, by the way, and there's a revenge. It's the revenge The of revenge Custer. of the 7th yeah. Cavalry from, yeah. uh, uh, from Little Bighorn. Um, 
he lost control of his of his soldiers, and it was just mass killing. Yeah. They, they American soldiers, sadly, chased Indian women and children um, up to three miles just to shoot them down, ran them down on horses, and just shot them. And mass Albert Afraid of Hawk was one of these children at the battle. No, do we, know we this? don't know where Albert was. We do know his brother Richard Afraid of Hawk, thirteen years old, was at was at that camp. We don't know how he got involved with Bigfoot's people, uh, whether he met them when they came down to Pine Ridge or whether he actually traveled with them, but he is there. And the family tells the story that when the shootings begin, and it's a very complex story, but when the shootings begin, the massive shootings begin, everybody's running and uh, uh, trying to escape the carnage. And um, thir- a 13-year-old Richard Alfredo Hawk falls. He trips. And it, 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 before he can get up on the ground, an American soldier with a rifle is over him with a rifle pointing yeah. at his head and pulls the trigger. But the gun jams, whether it was overheating from you know sure. repeated shooting, whatever, the gun jams. And as the soldier is trying to fiddle with his rifle, the 13-year-old gets up and runs. And eventually he would escape. He was one of the few um, um, escapees, if you will, survivors of wounded knee. Um, so the family history of, Albert is 10 years old when that happens, um, much as Opakaya was 10 years old when he lost his family. Um, it's interesting that both of these young men have gone through this just hellaciously traumatic experience as young children involving their families' massacres. Yeah, their family's history and, and what was happening to their people, especially in terms of Lakota, what was happening to Lakota. For, you know, Albert, we know from U.S. Census records, lived in the teepee with his grandfather, Slopal. And grandparents have a, 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 an important role in teaching the child, grandchildren the traditional ways. And so you, you, you can almost uh, envision, you know, we don't have as many records as we do with Opokahaia because of the memoirs. And we have to kind of, you know, I've had to kind of read between the lines type of thing. And, um, you know, how does this young boy growing up with his grandfather, hearing stories of the buffalo hunt, hearing stories about, uh, um, you know, uh, even the warfare against traditional enemies and warfare against the washishu, the white man, um, um, you know, and, and... and the Sundance, which was now prohibited, and the, you know, yeah, the, all of that is closed off to closed Albert, off right? To Albert. After Wounded Knee, the the remaining Lakota Sioux are a subjugated people, right? Oh, absolutely. They they were in, uh, you know the reservations where we got smaller and smaller because of European grab, land grabs, but uh, yeah, he's a first generation reservation Indian, and so. He never went on a buffalo hunt. He never did these things. And as he's becoming a young man, as a teenager, um, and he's, he's in a traditional family who is adapting, assimilating to this new world of, of, of Western society. They're learning how to farm and ranch. They're learning and how do. to farm. There were ranchers, exactly. Um, you could, I, I just, you know, one of the things I think he went with Buffalo Bill was to be able to relive or live that so how did life even if it was show so he he he's living on the reservation and he joins with buffalo bill to be one of his show indians in buffalo bill's wild west show which was a you know next to pt barnum's greatest show on earth this was the great attraction in america at the beginning of the 20th century what were they like 
Well, uh, the, 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 the show Wild itself, West shows, the Wild yeah. West show. Well, you know, um, Bill had the uh, Wild Bill had the wanderlust in him, and uh, he tried to settle down. Uh, I called on a, in a place in, in Nebraska called uh, Rancher's Rest, and it never quite worked out. He uh, um, he was asked by the town fathers to put together um, um, a celebration for the 4th of July. So he, he got some Native American friends as well as cowboys, and he put on what is considered the first rodeo in the American West, uh, and this would have been in 1882. And it was such a success, he did it again the next year. And it was such a success, he got the idea, let's take it on the road. People love this. And so he created this, this uh, show, um, which is really about the winning of the West. And, and the issue is he needed an enemy. And of course, the show Indians were the enemy. They were the ones that you know, uh, attacked the stagecoach, attacked the settlers, you know, uh, massacred uh, custard at Wounded Knee. And so they were kind of the heavies of the show. But um, you, know, you had to have a, 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 an enemy to conquer to win the West. You know, when, when, when I first read about this, I thought, well, why would an Indian agree to do that? But you sort of have the answer, right? Well, I, I think there are a number of motives. Uh, number one is firstly economics. The fact is that um, you know, there was such poverty on the reservations in the late 19th century, and Bill paid his Native Americans that, 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 that when the same wages he paid the white Americans. Which he, he, wasn't very, a very common practice. Right. Lot, he, he did yeah. not discriminate against them, and he allowed them, while they were with his show, to speak in their native language, to wear traditional clothes, and to conduct any ceremonies they thought uh, appropriate. Now, so whereas the reservation agents would suppress all of that, he's Indian, like, be yourself. The Indian reformers required that they uh, wear Western clothes, that they uh, not speak their language, and the children were taught English to get away from Lakota, uh, and they were prohibited from doing ceremonies like the sun dance. So what we were trying to do is destroy their culture. And the Indian, you know, the reformers, you know, their rationale was, look, we're doing it for their betterment. They're going to become extinct unless they become us. Yeah. And so Bill allows his Indians to continue to be Native American, uh, Lakota, a little bit longer, even if it's for show. They're so, modern people. They're, they're in the modern world, and, and they interact with the modern world. But... But every night they but get night, to reenact a battle be, and that's to right. ride. They could still, even in show, be uh, who they want to be. Now it was for everybody involved in those traveling shows. It was grueling work, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely grueling. They, they they had an amazing schedule from March to October, where um, it was uh, you traveled by train overnight. You arrived in, the, in a new city in the morning. You unloaded the, the, the trains and reset, the, you know, set up the tents and the, and the wagons and the animals. And, um, and then in the morning, you paraded through Main Street to, to get people to come out. You did a matinee performance uh, uh, in the afternoon. You did an evening performance at night. When the evening performances were done, you dismantled everything, got the horses, the stagecoaches, everything onto the train. You rode to the next morning. You did the same I thing. I am getting tired From hearing March about it. March to yeah. October. Yeah. It was incredible what they did. And, and of course, it was, it was really a tough, uh, tough, uh, uh, tough road. But um, it allowed them to, you know, for a number of things. They, they made money they could send home. Um, they could interact with the modern world. 
Um, and they could speak Lakota without anybody looking over their shoulder. So Albert signs on, and he's doing this. And, and in, what is it, 1900, 19, what year is... He was there in June of, uh, well, in Connecticut in June of 1900. Yeah, in June of 1900, he's with the show, and they come to Hartford. They have a huge turnout, a huge. huge. They, they oversell every show, and they're, you know, this is, it's a great success story. And they go to dinner that night, right? Like, Bill fed people well. Oh, yeah. He had a whole staff of cooks. And, and I mean, there was a lot of support staff, not just performers, that had to keep the show going. Managers and, uh, and what have you. And, uh, yeah, they uh, had... But they're 20... not necessarily eating traditional foods. No, no. They're no. eating American food. They're eating our food. Uh, the, the Lakota had a special table, table number seven for them, uh, that... Uh, they were able to eat at. They preferred meat uh, than anything else. They hate, they didn't never touch desserts. They didn't like desserts. It wasn't part of their yeah. traditional diet, so they they didn't they didn't go for that. Um, but what happened in Hartford was that uh, part of the meal was corn, canned corn, and evidently some of the cans were toxic. And uh, um, many performers, when they left Hartford to go to New Haven for the next show. By the time they got to New Haven the next day, there were about 50 performers who were sick. They had contracted food poisoning yeah. from this canned corn. And um, most of them got better, but by the time they got to uh, Danbury... That's the day after New Haven, so it's two they, days Actually, after they went after. from New Haven to South Norwalk and then to um, uh, Danbury. By the time they got to Danbury, Albert was very, very sick. And he literally couldn't travel with the show anymore, right? He was, uh, when they, when, uh, that night when they checked in on him, he was so sick. They, uh, the managers for the show, you know, told the Lakota chiefs that were with, uh, with, uh, with the show that the only way to save this kid's life is to get him to a white man's hospital where he can get constant care, but he's dying. And so they agreed to let him go. And he would, he would die... Uh, uh, after midnight that night in um, uh, Worcester or Danbury Hospital and would be buried the next day in an unmarked grave in Worcester Cemetery right below the hospital. So, and, and time goes on and Albert Afraid of Hawk is all but forgotten. Uh, all but forgotten except for his family uh, who keeps a, a memory of him, but they, don't, they never learned why he never came home from Wild, with Bio Bill show. Um, and, and you tell the story that his parents kept hoping that maybe one day he would come yeah, in. And, and, you know, that, that you know, he would come home at some point, and, uh, but nobody told them what happened. So, they didn't know he even died in, in Connecticut. So 90 years after he dies, yeah. you get an email. And what's the story? Well, the story here is that uh, um, uh, a local historian and genealogist, uh, Robert Bob Young, um, was working on remapping Worcester Cemetery and some of the old graves, and he found a burial card for a freighter hawk. His interest is piqued because he had heard that uh, an Indian died in the city but could never verify it, and started to do research and uh, found out that Albert died uh, and started to find more information about Albert. Because, as you mentioned, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, he decided, he found that there were still freighter hawks living uh, uh, actually at the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation who were uh, descendants of his family. So he went out and found Albert's relatives. Yeah, he he called, well, what he did is he contacted the the Pine Ridge uh, administration, the Pine Ridge Indian administration, and they said they would would 
yeah. contact the family for him. And so he gets a phone call from the family, and he, he, he goes out and meets them in, in, uh, uh, at Pine Ridge, and they're terribly excited and you know, are convinced that Albert has to come home. Um, and they start moving forward toward that, and Bob flies back to Connecticut, expecting to hear from them, doesn't hear anything for two years. And a couple of years go by, right? A couple of years go by, and he figures, well, maybe they're not going to do this. And, and, you know, and he talks about maybe we should put a marker down, you know, yeah. and acknowledge the burial, but there's not going to be a repatriation. Well, what ends up happening is two years later, um, Albert's grandniece, Marlis Afraid of Hawk, has a dream. And in the middle, in her dream, a young Lakota man comes to her, plays a flute, uh, and beckons for her to follow him. And he f- goes off into the clouds, and family members follow him. And she had no idea when she woke up what this dream meant and what was going on. She felt she, like Deborah Lee, she was felt that she was being called to do something, but she didn't, she could not understand what this all was about. And so she met with tribal elders, and they did a ceremony. At the end of the ceremony, she was told that that young man in the dream was her grandfather, Albert Afraid of Hawk, and he's telling you he wants to come home. Wow. So two, two The same were, story, say, yeah, two tribes. Two spiritual events. What, a hundred years apart, and in your life, 20 years apart, but the same trigger, the same inspiration. The same inspiration. It's extraordinary uh, that, uh, that, you know, and I say this in the book, that... that that this could happen to me twice. It was like unbelievable. And I remember when, uh, when um, um, the Afraid of Hawk family came to Danbury as part of the exhumation to be there, they, uh, I told them all about Henry Opokahia and Deborah Lee and what we had done 20 years ago. And, and uh, Marlis looked at me and she, she said, you know, I, I know what Debbie felt. Yeah. It's the same thing I felt. And they so, and, and now here you are. You're, you're back, you know, you're back in a burial vault again or back at a gravesite exhuming what you hope will be a body. Yes, but, yeah, no you know, again, it's Connecticut and lots of acid soil. But this time, the family is there. Yeah. And it's a, you know, there's a very scientific exhumation going on in an atmosphere of intense Native spiritualism, right? Absolutely. Can you describe what that's, happened? That's really a great way to say it because it is a combination of that, what was going on, uh, because the, the family was there. Uh, Marlis came with her father, Daniel J. Afraida Hawk, who, whose father was Richard Afraida Hawk, who was a survivor of Wounded Name, and Albert was his uncle in our uh, kinship, um, and her brother, John, uh, afraid of hawk, who kept the sage and the sweet grass, and you know he's the one that really did all of the ceremony, and uh, a cousin, uh, Richard Red Elk, who drove them from uh, the, the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation to Connecticut to be a part of this. Uh, the the tribal members on the reservation did a fundraiser so they could raise money for the afraid of hawk family to come to Connecticut. So we had them there. The sweet grass was permeating uh, the, the sage. Yeah, and burning burn. sweet grass is a it's spiritual... Constantly, yes, to purify, yeah. to purify. And um, um, it was just, um, it was a moving experience to have them there. And, and, you know, I keep them abreast of what I was finding, what I wasn't finding. And, um, and you also had a hawk. 
Well, uh, yes, uh, more than one, actually. Uh, more than one, actually. Uh, we had, um, 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 before the Fredo Hawk family arrived, Bob Young and his wife, Mary Jo, Bob Young was the, the historian who was, had originally found the car. That's right, and he's the one that really started it. So all he was the it. initiator yeah. of all of this. And uh, yeah. he had been in touch with the family back and forth, especially in preparing for them to come. Uh, and he he was telling me, he and Mary Jo were telling me that uh, the day before the family arrived, they he said we never see hawks in our neighborhood, and this hawk came down and perched on a branch in their yard and just started. Screaming, ah, ah, I mean, just screaming. And, and sure it wasn't a crow. No, it wasn't a crow. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> that sounded like I a crow. I can't do a crow. So it's, it's screeching in yeah. this high-pitched yeah. voice. And uh, they think, what's that? And they go out back and they see this hawk. And, and like he's calling to them almost. And then finally, the, once a hawk realizes, you know, they, they see the hawk, he takes off and he goes west in the direction the family was coming from. And then later on... So they took that to be a sign from Albert Afraid of Hawk. Or that's from, right. Yeah. That he, he, was, he was going yeah. to greet them, to bring them in. But that's not the only hawk that's that not figures the only in this hawk. story. Uh, so. uh, a few days later, after we found Albert's body, um, and we're, we're doing that, the family um, uh, decided to honor five of us who were instrumental in this repatriation that helped them. Uh, and they adopted us into their Teoshpahe, or family, extended family. Um, and they uh, bestowed upon us not only gifts, uh, quilts and blankets and necklaces and so forth, but they gave each of us uh, a Lakota name. Uh, and and what's your Lakota name? And my Lakota name is Tepuan Washti Okaili. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but, uh, and, and it means he who finds good. And well, you did a, find good that day. It's a sweet sentiment. It's a sweet yeah. sentiment, and uh, we, we were honored by the family with that. And so, but the hawk. Oh, I'm glad, <laughs> you, hawk. I'm glad yeah. you're on top of me. Yeah. Uh, yes, well, uh, um, after the naming ceremony was done, uh, and this is, uh, you know, a, a complex ceremony that the Lakota do, and um, um, when the, it's all done, uh, one of the workers looked up and, and said, look, a hawk. And a hawk had come out of the woods and was now circling us. And for about 20 minutes, that hawk just circled. Um, and uh, everybody was just amazed, you know. And Marlis uh, said it best. She said, his spirit is up in that hawk. His spirit has gone up into that hawk. Now, you are a scientifically trained <laughs> archaeologist and the forensic work you do if it's not scientific it's wrong and yet you are in in and it comes through so clearly in this book that there are things happening all around you that have nothing to do with science and you uh, e you put so many of them in there that, you know, any reader is going to be really curious as to how did you feel with all of these spiritually significant, you know, it, symbolic it, it, things happening? Emotional. I mean, it, when you saw these things happening, you're just kind of just shaking your head. Is, could this be happening? Is this, you know, is, is that one of a million hawks in the state of Connecticut? but that he comes out at that time and yeah. circles us for that long. Um, and, and all other aspects of the story, um, 
that, that would happen to us. And you know, uh, you try to stay focused, you try to be scientific, you've got a professional job to do, but things are happening that make you wonder. And um, you know, there's that scientific side of me that says, well, maybe this is all coincidence. And then there's the other side of me that says, you know what, there's something more going on here that I can't explain as a scientist, but that's fine. Yeah. Because it's happening. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, whether uh, another scientist wants to just brush it off and say, you know, poo-poo, it's just fate, it's just chance, it's just these well, things I was, happen. Well, I was really but, impressed know, that you, you, felt it. you recorded it, I think, very carefully. You, you say that it's there, and at the end of the day, every, every reader is going to draw their own conclusions about what's happening here. I think that's right. Every but reader will. You, you, fortunately... Albert Afreda Hawk was there, and yes. you were able, and it's, the book will explain how careful and difficult a process it was, but you were able to repatriate him to South Dakota, to, to Pine Ridge, to Pine Ridge. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and they had a wonderful ceremony there for him. Absolutely. The family put on uh, their Tioch Bahe, their... their, their came together, and the, and, the, and the Pine Ridge community came together, um, and um, um, they brought Henry, excuse me, they brought Albert to um, St. Mark's Episcopal Church Cemetery. The church is now gone, but the mission that was there, the, the family had converted to Episcopal Protestantism in 1893, and uh, Albert's father is buried there, his mother, uh, his brother, Richard, who survived Wounded Knee, is buried there, uh, and that's where they wanted to bring Albert. And when they brought him there, they placed him on a scaffold, which is a traditional Lakota burial. He never had that in Worcester Cemetery. Right. He got a Christian yeah. European burial yeah. uh, in a, in a uh, wooden coffin. Um, but now he was up uh, on a scaffold, wrapped in a buffalo rope. Uh, and in the coffin was food. Berries, uh, uh, cherry juice, cherry right. juice, and this is in their belief system. It's a four-day journey to the next life, so you need food, and any food that's left over, you give to the relatives, the deceased. When the you get there, that when you get yeah. there. Um, so he stayed until darkness on the scaffold, and then was brought down and buried in the buffalo robe on, on the ground, uh, right behind his father. Afraid, the original Afraid of Hawk, Emil Afraid of Hawk. And uh, so, it, it, you know, very powerful. As you, I think it's, as we get near the epilogue of the book, you talk about trips you made in 2013. In 2013, you and your wife go both to Hawaii and both to Pine Ridge. Yeah. And you saw for the first time Henry... Obukaya, Obukakahia. Obukahia, very good. You saw him in his final resting place. Yeah. The same year, you saw Albert Afraid of Hawk in his final, final resting, resting yeah. place. And, you know, the two of them gave you a chance. It was nice. With the perspective of time, you had a chance to kind of absorb it all and really reflect on the meaning of all this. Yeah. So for you, you know, when you, when you came back from those trips and you thought, you say in the book, you say, I felt as if all the 40 years of my archaeological training had really gone in to preparing me to do these two things. 
I truly believe that. I really do. I mean, that, that, that wasn't just put in there. I do believe that. Um, you know, um, I think all of us that are lucky enough to do the work we do, as you do as a state historian and the people you're involved with and so forth, um, you know, you get those special things that happen to you that are just... Uh, um, and, and when it came to this, these, these two repatriations to me were so powerful. Um, and you're right, you know, when I was, when I was there, um, you know, I'm standing over this beautiful burial monument for Henry Obukahaya, um, and I'm thinking, I, I, all I could think about is those two days up on the hill and seeing him and working on him and, and what it meant to his family um, and, and the people in Cornwall, too. I mean, the, 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 the sediments that were involved, and I got to meet family members, and they told me how meaningful this was. And then I go to Pine Ridge, and the scaffold is still standing. It's still there, even though he is now buried in the ground. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm able to look and talk to him again and, 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 and recall it all and, and, and meet new family members who again expressed to me the gratitude and, and so forth. And uh, it, it so, became so personal. It's personal. That, that's probably the best way I could say it. It's personal. Uh, and, um, and, um, um, and, and then I really, and as I was putting this book together, you know, and I was trying to reflect on just the question you asked, what, what does this really mean to me? And I, I said, you know, what it meant to me is that this is what I was here for. Yeah. I was meant to do this. Well, you titled the book The Long Journey's Home. And when I first saw it, I said, because I knew what you'd written about it, I said, well, that's the journey of uh, Henry Opukahia and Albert Afraid of Hawk. But I think it's the story of three long journeys home because it's the story of your long journey home, too, yeah, I think. I, I, yeah, you're right. And, and, and I kind of allude to some of that in the, in, the, in the prologue and the epilogue. I try not to get that in the way of the narrative because this is the story about these men and their family. Okay, and of course, you know, bringing it up with the modern forensics and archaeology. But I, I didn't want my story in the narrative. Uh, but if you could pick it up at both ends of the story, uh, how much it meant to me, uh, and to be honored to be a, have been a part of this, um, you know, hopefully if that comes through, then I've done my job. Well, I will, um, not as a spoiler, but just kind of as a <laughs> teaser, I think, I will tell people that one of the really wonderful things about the way this book is written is the structure. You tell the story of the person, but you intersperse it frequently with these moments when you are at the graveside doing the exhumation. We, we get the lived experience of the present connected so forcefully to the history and the life of the people in the past. We get the family stories. We get the larger historic stories. And you can't escape that powerful personal experience that it was for you and that it was for me as a reader of this wonderful book. Nick. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, 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 I wanted people to, to understand that this is as much a contemporary story. This is about, you know, indigenous people today, Native Americans, Native Hawaiians who are dealing with culture change in the world and they are looking for their ancestors here, in this case, for inspiration, for uh, uh, meaning. Um, this is the, to the quality of their lives the, the, is what this is all about. And I didn't want the reader to lose that this was a contemporary story as well as a history story. You it absolutely both. don't. It, it is. Both. And that, that, I think, is the magic of it. You realize that 
the past is always deeply in and around us in the present. It's so, it's so true. And you, your work as the state historian um, documents that. I oh, mean, you're being nice. No, but no, it is because it's, it, it brings the past to, to us and understanding that, you know, who we are, you know, I tell my students, we weren't just dropped here in the 21st century with shopping malls and, uh, and, and smartphones. We come from a past and we honor them by learning about their lives and they honor us by giving us life. And it's together, uh, that two-way street, we are connected and we can't lose those connections. If we do, we lose a sense of who we are. What could be better than that? It's a perfect way to end this. Nick Bellantoni, author of The Long Journey's Home, The Repatriations of Henry Opu, I'm gonna get it right now, Opukahaia Very good. and Alfred Afraid of Hawk. It's published by Wesleyan Press. It's just out. Don't miss it. Thank you, Walt. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Nick Bellantoni and the Litchfield Historical Society. To hear more Grading the Nutmeg episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast app or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And please remember to leave us a review. For more great Connecticut stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at Bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. I'm Walt Woodward. See you next time on Grading the Nutmeg.